Looking for the perfect gift for yourself or the beer lover in your life? Check out beeredge.com slash merch for all of your Defend Pilsner and Camp Rauk Beer needs. And also, don't forget to get with us on social media for the This Week in Rauk Beer Facebook group or at TW Rauk Beer on Instagram and Twitter to show us your smoked beers. From the blending of beer styles to create something new, grading barrels, fighting back against bullshit and beer, and sticking to a brewing ethos, Matt Manthe of Odd Breed Wild Ales is here to talk about microbes and more. First up, we're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to these advertisers. Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code DRINKBEER15 for 15% off your first order. And we're also brought to you by NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. Inspired by Belgium and its beers, Matt Manthe has a strong respect for wild microbes, spontaneous ales, and the results that come from letting cultures express themselves. His professional brewing career and studies have taken him from South Carolina to Berlin and now to Florida, where he did the work of shift and head brewing, making clean beers for thirsty customers. Behind the scenes and at home, he was experimenting with his own house strain and thinking about long and wood-aged ales. You'd expect nothing less from a brewer who has a degree in microbiology. Odd Breed Wild Ales opened up in 2017, and it's the expression of Manthe and the beers he wants to make, the ones that come from an idea that often has to wait for months or years for a formal debut. From whole cone hops to locally sourced fruit to wild lagers, he's thinking about it all. Conversations like this are always fun and can go in unexpected ways. This is essentially a chat about three beers, but as you'll hear, it's actually about so much more. Matt spoke to me from the brewery in Pompano Beach, Florida. Here's our conversation. So as you look around the brewery and all of the barrels and everything that you have that's getting ready to go out into the world, um, is there anything currently resting that you're really excited for people to try for, I guess, even for you to try as well? Sure. Yeah. So the, the beer that I'm bottling this week is going to be oddities and outliers blend three. And uh, so we, we recently got a little bit of notoriety for this uh, series that we, we just recently started. Uh, we just won a, a gold medal at JBF for blend two. Um, the, the concept for this series is to blend dissimilar beers. And so it's beers that are brewed differently, fermented differently, aged differently, and uh, honestly don't really seem like they belong together. Um, but that's kind of the, the fun and the challenge is, is putting these beers together to create something cohesive and something that's, that's uh, greater than the sum of its parts. So let's talk about blend one first then. Sure. Yeah. So, so blend one, 
uh, was a, a blend of uh, the backbone really of that blend was a wild lager that was essentially brewed like a Munich Helles, uh, single decoction, fermented cold with a German lager yeast, aged 36 months in neutral French oak punchions. And that was blended with uh, a couple of our Lambic inspired wild ales. Um, those Lambic inspired wild ales each were brewed a little bit differently, fermented a little bit differently. Those ones actually were not spontaneous. Uh, whereas the uh, the lambic inspired blend that I used for uh, for blend two was uh, spontaneous. Okay, that, for some reason I have this old school idea of like a black and tan, um, even though those were still fairly complementary uh, flavors. You know, the the idea of mixing two styles or hybrid styles, um, it, it's just not all that common, and it's one of those things that uh, I'm I'm really sort of tickled by. Uh, before we talk about the next two blends, though, like when you were putting together the idea for blend one, where where did that idea process start? Like, what was the spark of inspiration for you? Uh, so <laughs> this probably sounds uh, <laughs> so. I was drinking atypical. really hard one night. Yeah, <laughs> sounds kind of atypical for yeah. for most. I had some Cantillon uh... <laughs> and I had some Bud Heavy. And no, no, I said, what would happen if I threw it in a Yeti tumbler? Yeah, it wasn't quite like that. It was it was more so. <laughs> so I, I kind of give my my barrels a, a letter grade based on on how I, I think of them uh, from a, a sensory standpoint, I, I guess more of a, a qualitative standpoint, actually. And that's A, B, C and D. D are, are dumpers. Those are those are beers that are going down the drain. They just didn't turn out properly. A are beers that are uh, that are great that uh, I think should be served on their own. For the most part, those are beers that are designed to be served on their own that aren't part of a blend. Um, and then Bs are blenders and Cs are complementary beers. The Cs complementary basically meaning that there's there's nothing wrong with the beer, but there's also not quite necessarily anything exceptional or or otherwise uh, unique about it. Uh, and and the B barrels, those are the blenders. Those are the ones that I think are are really kind of unique. Maybe a little bit too far in one direction to uh, to stand on their own, um, but but those are the the barrels that I find to be kind of fun to work with. And so the the whole concept, I guess, for the Oddities and Outliers series was basically to take these barrels that were kind of the the outliers in the brewery and try to put them to good use. And uh, so trying to uh, to make something good with them uh, that's complex, that's balanced. Um, you know, that's that's really always my goal when it comes to to blending beers. So when you were putting the first one together, you had these two particular beers that were ready at the same time or ready-ish at the same time? Or did you have one and then come up with this idea and then wait for something else to come along? So I, I have uh, several of these um, these 31-gallon, I call them cellar, cellar kegs. They're, it's basically uh, two half-barrel shells that are welded together. Sounds okay. kind of crude, but it, it uh, but they, they look pretty. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I've got it. And if I've it got, works, uh, yeah, don't don't knock it if it works. Yeah. yeah. So I've so I've got like a dozen of these, and uh, I work primarily with uh, with large French oak punchions, 500 liters. And so sometimes when I'm putting together a blend of something, uh, I end up with some excess volume or just something that I don't feel like quite has a home yet. And so I'll I'll put it in those cellar kegs. And so uh, in the case of the uh, the wild lager that spent 36 months in, in barrels, that was actually one of the first barrels that I filled here at the brewery. Uh, our brewery is about to be four years old. So I, I had that beer in uh, in one of these cellar kegs, uh, 31 gallons of it anyway, for, for quite some time. And uh, I was just kind of waiting for an opportunity uh, to use it. And so when I when I started thinking about what I could use it with and, and uh, 
you know, I, I taste the beers in my barrels. I wouldn't say really on a regular basis, probably less frequently than most brewers do. Um, but I, I try to keep a, a, a decent idea of what's going on in the different barrels. Um, what I think is time sensitive versus what's going to get better uh, with some more age. What is what is basically kind of plateaued. And uh, and I, I, I start thinking about, you know, different ways that I could use those those uh, barrels, uh, how they'll blend well, what maybe they're missing. And if they are missing something, you know, how I how I can achieve the the overall balance and complexity that I want in, in a blend. Plateau is such an interesting word to use as well, though, because it, it, it whenever I talk to, to brewers in your space, I'm always really curious about when you know something is ready or when you think it might almost be ready or you know if you've missed a window and when it's passed you by um because it really it's so much of it is personal um i mean a lot of it can be uh normal sensory stuff but if you want the these beers to be an expression of not only the wood and the microbes but also you and your place um that's that third factor that sort of comes in and Plateau is not really a word that I, I, I think I've experienced or heard all that much from uh, brewers in your arena. Um, is, is that a good thing? Like if something gets to be plateaued, like is it then just immediately ready to go out or have you missed a shot at that point? No, I, I would. So when I say uh, plateaued, I mean, there's um, I, I guess there's different ways to approach that word. Right. You could you could look at it as as peaked and then and then uh, it's it's past, you know, going to go downhill after that. When I say plateau, I guess more so what I mean is just that th this beer is as good as it's going to get more or less mm -hmm. and that I should figure out something to do with it within the next three to four months. OK, um, so you still I, have some runway then. Correct. Yeah. OK. I, I, Peak is is a word that I, I guess an adjective that I would use more so describing beer that's uh, in a very characterful spirit barrel, uh, and or that's that's on fresh fruit. Uh, especially with fresh fruit, I feel like I have a limited amount of time to work with. I've done some beers that spent uh, a pretty long time, like like six to eight months on fresh fruit, but most of the stuff that I'm doing now, I've I've found that I'm getting better flavor uh, for the most part anyway in about four to six weeks. And then, really? uh, and then I, I actually prefer to do a longer bottle conditioning time instead. Uh, so, you know, even even our kegs, we, we naturally condition. And so I, I have another warehouse that's a few miles from our, our uh, production facility that's just for bottle conditioning and keg conditioning. And as our brewery's gotten older, I've found that for the most part, the longer I leave a beer in a barrel, the longer conditioning time it needs in the in the package before I'm, um, I feel that it's ready to release. So cutting out that middleman and going to the packaging sooner sooner from yeah. uh from the fruit anyway yeah, yeah. so so i'm okay. still re-fermenting all the fruit just to, to be clear i'm not uh okay. not putting out uh bottle bombs uh at least so far i, I don't believe i have <laughs> that's definitely not my intention uh i don't write you know drink uh drink fresh keep cold or anything like that on the bottles <laughs> I, I try to explain to to our consumers that you know the, the fruit beers are going to be their most vibrant uh when when they're released but uh, yeah. that doesn't mean that they don't age well uh and it to a certain extent depends on what what the consumer wants um you know a lot of my beers with fruit i actually prefer them after they've been in the bottle for a year or two okay um and these are conversations that you've had with your customers over time sure yeah i, I try to explain it to them anyway you know it's um 
In some ways, you know, uh, first of all, in, in South Florida, our, our beer market is still underdeveloped. Uh, we've had a lot of breweries that have opened up uh, since since my brewery. Um, my brewery is almost four years old now. We're a week away from from our four year anniversary, and uh, and we're actually one of the older breweries in the area. And uh, my brewery is a little bit odd also in that I had a good bit, I think, anyway, of production experience. I was uh, brewing professionally for about 10 years before opening up Odd Breed, uh, whereas the majority of the, the brewery owners down here, uh, for the most part, just have, have homebrew experience. And certainly there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but, they're, but they have a little bit of a different approach uh, to beer than I do, um, to maybe to put it mildly. And uh, so it, it's actually gotten tougher for me over the years to explain the types of beers that I make and how they differ from other sour beers on the market. Uh, when we first opened, a lot of the people coming in that enjoyed sour beers uh, were familiar with with uh, lambic and other wild ales, and you know they they had barrel aged sour beer before. Uh, nowadays, most of the people that are coming in that haven't had our beer before, they're telling me that they enjoy sour beers. They're they're telling me about the, the beers that they like from various breweries and, you know, they're all kettle sours. And uh, certainly there's, there's nothing wrong with that, um, but it's a very different product from, from what I make. And uh, I found that some of the consumers actually prefer kettle sours. Uh, others, fortunately, uh, do prefer, you know, the product that I make. But from a production standpoint, a mindset, you know, they're, they're very different. And so the educational aspect of, of uh, making these kind of beers, trying to inform our local consumer is definitely tough. Uh, we do a decent bit of distribution, and I've noticed that the markets that we sell in that are uh, more established, that have a, a longstanding craft beer scene, uh, and preferably uh, markets that have other breweries, breweries within our niche, it's, it's an easier sell for us there. Uh, the, the consumers are more familiar with our product. They understand the intention, the purpose behind what we're doing. That's really... When, when you were talking about fruit and how we sort of first got onto that, though... Uh, in South Florida, so many of the breweries that I think sort of led the charge down in South Florida, and and I'm you know thinking like Wakefield and some of those, like went all in on you know big sticky stouts, which I was always really sort of surprised about given the climate. Sure. Um, but especially the, the the fruit accented ones really seem to resonate as well. Do, do do you find that if you do have a fruited version of your beers or beers with fruit that those get a little bit more recognition or interest from local drinkers? Uh, so yes and no, I would say okay. initially, yes, absolutely. Um, I've, I've noticed, and perhaps it's just because my focus has shifted a little bit. Um, but I, I'm finding now that, uh, most of our consumers that are, that are really passionate about what we're doing, uh, that, that are visiting the brewery, you know, about every week or so, uh, they're actually preferring a lot more of the blends that I'm putting together and the beers that are aged in unique spirit barrels after aging in our, our French oak punchions. And so that's not to say that we aren't still selling the fruit beers and we do sell more fruit beers than we do of our non-fruited beers, but it's definitely a different clientele also. Uh, so most of the people that are newer to what we do, I've found are the ones that seem to gravitate towards the fruit beers. Uh, whereas those that have been our, our longtime customers that are familiar with, uh, with the other producers within our niche, they're the ones that really seem to appreciate our, our unfruited beers. I also prefer unfruited beers. Um, you know, I, I do make a decent bit of fruit beers and lately 
this year, one of my renewed focuses has been on using fresh local fruit. And so in, in South Florida, we have access to a lot of citrus and tropical fruit that other parts of the country just don't have access to. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that, that sets us apart also from the other breweries, uh, really probably in, in the whole state of Florida, is that we only use fresh fruit. I don't, I don't use any uh, aseptic purees. I don't use any concentrates. And you can get some good flavor with, with uh, you know, purees and concentrates. And there are certainly tons of breweries that, that use those. But, you know, one of the, the beers that I'm releasing next week is made with fresh passion fruit. And I, I could be wrong, but I, I don't know of a, a single commercial, bre- uh, commercial beer that's made with uh, fresh passion fruit. And uh, this is the first time you're going to get the emails now. (laughs) I'm ready for them. I want to find out about the other breweries using them because I I love passion fruit. I think it works great in beer and I'd, I'd love to try some, some uh, products from other producers, but uh, you know, passion fruit's really expensive. And so I've been, I've been wanting to use it for a while. uh, And I've, I've used it on some small batch stuff uh, that of course wasn't for sale. And, uh, but you know, I reaching out to, to local farmers that want 10 to 15 bucks a pound for passion fruit. Uh, I, I can't really do that. And then, no. and then charge 75 bucks a bottle for the beer. You know, nobody's uh, going to be too happy with me at that point. Uh, so it, it took me four years to, uh, to finally find a good source for passion fruit and it's still expensive, but, uh, but it's, it's commercially viable. When you are, and I'm, I'm going to get back to uh, oddities and outliers, but when you're using whole fruit, local fruit, um, I've been in breweries on days where they are peeling or they are slicing or they're getting things ready in it. And it, you know, you, you talk to the newbies and they, they're, they're pretty excited by it because they've never done it before. And then if you can find the assistant brewer, the head brewer who's done it, you know, even four or five times, uh, they look like death sort of warmed over. Um, <laughs> Cause it is, it can be very labor intensive and it, it you, know, you have to take in all sorts of uh, sanitary uh, considerations a, a, a along the way. Um, how do you how do you prep for some of these days? Like, are, are, I mean, let's use passion fruit as an example. Like, what were what were the brew day? What was the brew day like, or the days leading up to the brew day like? So, I I use the the fruit um, almost exclusively post barrel aging. Uh, I've I've done some fruited beers where I, I fruit them after primary fermentation, uh, and then they go into a barrel, but. For the most part, I'm I'm working with beer that's that's essentially a finished beer, and so I already know which beer uh, I'm going to blend onto the fruit. Uh, usually, I already have it in stainless steel waiting for me. And uh, in the case of the passion fruit, it um, it was something that kind of just suddenly showed up as, as a possibility for me to use. And so, uh, I believe I was processing it all. In fact, I remember now it was a Thursday. Uh, I actually had a bartender that was out of town, so I was bartending. And, uh, and trying to uh, uh, process this passion fruit. And then I ended up, ended up taking me about seven hours in total. Uh, I didn't have any help. Uh, it's 250 pounds. It, uh, it wasn't fun, but you know, this is, this is an opportunity that I've been waiting four years for. And yeah. so I didn't want to let that pass by and, you know, you got to use the fruit when it's ripe. And uh, um, so, yeah, I, I just, had to stick it out and make it happen. But, you know, we, we do a beer uh, every year with, with fresh uh, peaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually grow peaches in Florida. Uh, not not where I sense. live, but about okay. two hours North of where I am. Yeah. Uh, I can get, I can get peaches and they're uh, they're a special cultivar that that's uh, that's designed for Florida. So it's uh, they don't grow very big. They have a very short growing season. 
they get to be about the size of plums if you're lucky. And okay. so that means that I've got about twice as many peaches to, to process per pound. Yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, fortunately uh, for that, I, I'm usually able to plan farther in advance. And so I, I have some friends that come in and uh, we try to make a, a party of it. You know, I, I give them, them beer and uh, uh, both draft beer while they're working and some bottles to go. And fortunately, there are a lot of them that, that seem to really enjoy it. Some of them are homebrewers, others are just <laughs> friends. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a really small team. I have two part-time bartenders, and then one of my business partners helps me out with a lot of the, the distribution logistics. But, uh, but I'm, I'm it as far as the, uh, the production side goes. So you have to be psyched about doing this then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my so my philosophy, I guess, with using fresh fruit, I, I have people all the time, other brewers, as well as vendors that, that hit me up by, by email or, or, or call the brewery telling me about their, their aseptic purees or, or whatnot. And, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, I, I don't mean to sound snobby, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm putting a lot of work and time and effort into these beers that I make. They're spending one to three years in barrels. Uh, I don't want to pull them out and then just add some ubiquitous pasteurized puree that's one dimensional. If, if I'm going to put all this, this work and effort into trying to make a, a, this really, you know, bright complex beer, uh, I want to use the best fruit that I can. And it's, it's my belief that, that I'm going to get the best fruit flavor from using fresh fruit. And so I, I, I would rather not use fruit um, if, if my option were to use concentrates or purees. Uh, so I, I don't make as many fruit beers as, as other uh, breweries within our niche. And, uh, and that's intentional. Let's jump back then. So your first one comes out and you're happy with it, presumably. Uh, is that when you wanted to continue on with uh, an oddities and outlier series? Oh, or I, I planned it to be a some, series. All you along. did. Uh, so, so, yeah. uh, so right from the beginning. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It was so most of the beers that I make uh, because I'm I'm aging in in Punchions, uh, which which by the way I think is something that's not entirely unique within our niche, but um, but definitely separates us from from a lot of other breweries. And that most breweries I think within our niche are using standard size wine barrels. Mm -hmm. uh, some are using fooders you'll find that most traditional uh, Lambic brewers are using Punchions. Yeah. And uh, part of the reason for that, um, or at least I should say uh, the reason that I'm using them, um, you know, I, I assume that they're using them for similar reasons, but the, the reason that I, I prefer them is that they, they have uh, less surface area in the larger barrels. There's thicker staves, so I'm, I'm letting less oxygen into the barrels. I find that the that the beer ages a lot a lot nicer, and uh, it, it's just it, it ends up being softer. It's more complex. I don't find as many barrels that are um, that are too heavy in one direction uh, when they're coming out of punchions. And so, most of the beers that I make, probably two thirds or so, maybe even more, are are not blended beers. Uh, I'm I'm brewing a recipe. Uh, basically, I do a twenty hectoliter batch. So that's a, about an eighteen barrel batch, and uh, and I'll transfer that into to four of my 500 liter punchions, and each of those barrels, for the most part, within that same batch, will will taste pretty much the same, uh, and to the point where there isn't even really much purpose in blending those those four barrels together. Uh, I'm not really going to achieve much more than I would from just pulling out of one of them. Um, so the the concept really for oddities and outliers, in part, was was just from a, a business standpoint of trying to figure out a home for these barrels. 
you know, these are, these are beers that otherwise aren't necessarily bad. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but you know, some of the beers that I brew, I don't have a specific intention for, uh, I have, I, I try to keep, uh, at least, a, a mental notes of, of what, uh, what I have in barrels. Um, you know, if I, if I have a lot of, uh, one particular beer that really expresses, um, you know, whether it be our, our aged hops or, um, or maybe a certain type of funk. And I, I'm thinking, man, you know, I, I need something that's, uh, that's got some more citrusy type notes, maybe something that's, that's got more, uh, American hops in it. Um, which is actually I, something I guess that, uh, kind of sets us apart from a lot of other breweries is that I do use a lot of hops. So our, our Lambic inspired <laughs> beers have about two pounds to two and a half pounds per barrel of aged hops in the, in the kettle. Uh, I do some, uh, some hoppy saisons that are around 40 to 50 IBUs. Most of those I'm actually not using on their own. They're actually for blending. Uh, and sometimes only a little bit is needed to, uh, to kind of, uh, push the blend in the right direction. But, uh, but the oddities and outliers series was something that once I kind of came up with the idea, I thought, oh man, this, this will be kind of a cool thing to, to play around with. It's, uh, um, you know, kind of give me the, the outlet to do a little bit more blending, uh, yeah. which, you know, as I mentioned, isn't something I do a ton of, right. uh, I do some blends that are, um, uh, that'll be like 80 to even 90% one beer. And then it's just that little bit of something that kind of brings, brings the overall flavor into the direction that I want. Um, also as the brewery's gotten older, I've, I've been in a situation where I've, I've had a lot of beers that are two years plus in barrels mm-hmm. and I like to use a little bit of younger beer. Uh, if only for the purpose to uh, to bring in some some fresh yeast, uh, to bring in our our mixed culture, to get some active bread in the bottle. Um, God, see, I love this conversation because you you just <laughs> there's like a dozen things that I want to follow up on, but the 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 one I guess the the two that sort of stick with me are some of your blends being 80, 90% of one beer, and then just, you know, 20 or 10% of, uh, uh, of another, there's something really interesting about, I, I was almost picturing being in the kitchen and saying, Hey, this dish is really good, but it just needs something. And you go to the pantry and you find you know, something that just sort of works to help it just pop um, sure. you know, the fridge or yeah. something, something like that. Um, is, is there a good example of one of your beers where, you know, it was ninety percent something, and yeah, where so your brain went. Yeah, I haven't released it yet, but but uh, but yeah, a lot of what I do is somewhat improvisational, like that. And that, uh, you know, the market's always changing, and that's that's uh, I think just backing up a little bit. That's that's one thing that's that's been a constant challenge uh, for for my brewery, is that uh, you know I can't respond to market conditions as quickly as uh, say typical breweries can, and so. Um, so you totally I, missed brewed IPA is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, unbeknownst to most consumers, I got some in barrels right now. I'll, I'll release it in a few years when uh, I got, I got, bad, I got bad news for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, going back to, um, uh, that one of those blends that I did recently. So I, I do, a uh, what I, I call our flagship Saison uh, past and future. I've, I've released four batches of it in four years. So, um, we've, we've kind of shifted into the direction of not really having flagships or even regular beers. And a lot of that is just our, our local consumer base just really wants something new every time. And so even the beers that I've, that I've rebrewed, which, um, I, I think we've released like 130 or so different beers, um, maybe a dozen of them or so I've made more than one batch of, 
And on all of those beers, the reason I made a second batch or, or third, or in the one case, past and future four batches is because they were well-received. But I've noticed that each time I, I brew another batch of the beer, the sales aren't the same as what it was for the first go around. And, uh, and we wait, get wait, some they, dro- are, they, they drop. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes significantly. And some of it is because, you know, we get people that just, they, they say that they overpurchased uh, the first time around and they still have, you know, two cases of this beer in their cellar and okay. like, all right, well, th- you know, thanks for, for buying those the first go around, but blend two is better. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes they listen to me, other times they don't, but, but, uh, but anyway, all, all that uh, is to say is that, um, uh, past and future, our, our Saison is, is, uh, supposed to have a barrel aging time of one year. And, uh, I, I ended up using three of the, the four punchions, uh, for blend four. Uh, one of them, it just didn't really make sense for me to blend in and, uh, not because there was anything wrong with the beer. It was just a volume thing. And, uh, you know, it was, well, you know, I, I've only got, uh, uh, so many kegs and so much room in house. And, uh, does it make sense for me to, uh, to package up this volume of beer? Uh, no, I should find something else to do with this, this barrel. So, um, that barrel actually ended up kind of getting away from me a little bit and it ended up spending two years in that barrel. Wow. Um, okay. I, I honestly had, uh, after about 18, 19 months in the barrel had just kind of, um, written it off as, as something that was going to be a loss, uh, that I wasn't going to get to pull out of the barrel in time, uh, that, that I had missed my harvest window on it and that I should just move on and focus on something else. Uh, about every four to six months, I try some of my barrels that basically fall into that category and say, you know, what, is this beer any good? Is there anything that I can do with this? Does it have any potential? Uh, or, or is it uh, going down the drain? And so I, I tried this, this barrel and was very pleasantly surprised by it. It had aged very nicely. It was, it was very soft. Uh, didn't develop, um, uh, too much acetic acid, you know, all of our beers are going to have some acetic acid because they're in barrels and they're fermented with Britannomyces, but I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to acetic acid and, and ethyl acetate. I really don't like those flavors. And, uh, when I tried this beer, I was, I was really surprised at, at how nice the, uh, the funky Brett quality was on it, how, how good the tannins were. And, uh, I didn't really want to release it just on its own, um, because I wanted something to differentiate it a little bit more from, uh, from past and future. And so I, I took two other beers, uh, a wild lager that spent six months in barrels and then more of a hoppy, funky Saison, uh, that also spent about six months in barrels. And so I blended those three beers together the, uh, the overall beer. Um, I should know this offhand cause I just bottled this up a few weeks ago, but I want to say it was somewhere around 85 to 90% of that two year old past and future. And so, uh, I'll release that probably late spring of next year. Okay. Why, why late spring? What do you, what do you want it to do in between now and then, or so what do you I've, hope it does? Yeah. So I've, I've found that the, the beers that I make where I'm, I'm blending something kind of dissimilar like that, uh, it just takes a while in the bottle for them to kind of come together and be more cohesive. Um, especially when I, when I've got something that, uh, like, like this beer where the majority of the blend is, is two years old. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just it. The beers that I make uh, that that referment fruit are actually ready the fastest, and uh, my theory on that is just that they've they've recently been fermenting, and you know so the the uh, 
everything that I do, you know, is, is a hundred percent naturally conditioned. And so it, it takes a little while for, for some of the, um, uh, what I call intermediate off flavors to go away. And so it's the, the beer is usually carbonated within a month or so, but, uh, but it doesn't usually taste very good at that point. Huh. Uh, it might have some components that taste nice, that taste almost ready, but the, the overall profile of the beer usually takes, uh, at least a few months after that, before it's, it's really ready. But the exception being the, the fruited beers. And, and again, I think that's just because there's, there's a lot more active yeast in solution. It just yeah. completed a fermentation. And so when it goes into that bottle, it's, uh, it, it's, it's carbonating much quicker, you know, usually within a week or two. Um, and so it just doesn't need as much time. What's, I mean, it's almost like, you know, chilies and, and soups always taste better the next day. To, sure. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's sort of an elegant compared to, you know, <laughs> you've got a Texas beef chili versus what you're doing, but still, um, I, 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 I love I, chili. No I, I get the idea. There. Um, more in a quick moment, but first thanks to the companies that keep the mics hot over here. When it comes to printed brewery products, head to Stomp Stickers. The company is a reliable resource for printed items such as beer labels and boxes, keg collars, coasters, and more. Visit stompstickers.com and use code DRINKBEER15 for 15% off your first order. And we're also brought to you by NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years to produce some of the world's finest hops. NZ Hops are like no others, unique in their flavors and aromas. Visit nzhops.co.nz to explore more. And now back to my conversation with Matt Manthe of Odd Breed Wild Ales. One of the other things, though, that, you know, before we started talking about blending was you said that there were, you know, some beers um, that you brew that you have no intention for, that you're just sort of brewing these beers and, you know, maybe they'll turn into something maybe, you know, or, 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 or they'll be used. Um, I'd love to know more about that, but also then you come up with these recipes and you have an idea of what you want these to be. And I think I'm having a tough time sort of circling that square of you've created a recipe, you've you know now made a recipe and then your it's future is unknown. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, that's, that's kind of fun. I feel like, but uh, so it's gotta be know, stressful too, though. Oh yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I try not to uh, obsess over the kind of stuff that I, that I can't really change. Um, yeah. I was telling my, one of my business partners the other day, uh, it, cause he, he mentioned something similar and I was like, you just got to trust the the process and the science. And, uh, you know, there's, there's only so many things that you can control, especially with wild beer. Um, you know, there, there are so many variables at play and, uh, you know, there, on the one hand, you can, you can choose to, to look at each one of those variables and, and try to control them the best that you can. Or you can you can say you know what these these variables are beyond my control. These are the ones that I can control. These are the ones that I feel that I need to focus on, and uh, and so that's that's kind of what I try to do. And so uh, the beer that I brewed most recently, uh, on on paper anyway, the recipe looks kind of like a, a hazy double IPA, and uh, you know I I brewed that beer really with the sole intention of using it as something to to blend uh, with some of my older barrels, uh, something to add some nice citrus, uh, tropical fruit flavor. Uh, the higher ABV and the, the elevated uh, IBUs in the beer mean that it, it won't have much acidity. Uh, our mixed culture does have a good bit of hop tolerance, 
And so it, it can produce acidity in something that's, you know, 50 IBUs. If, it's, if it sits long enough, you know, even something with 60 IBUs uh, will develop some acidity and, and finish, you know, around a pH of like 3.8. Um, and you, you can't do that with, with lab cultures, but uh, because our, our mixed culture is so far removed, um, it, it has that kind of ability. Um, but, you know, going back to what I was mentioning earlier, a lot of it is just kind of kind of taking mental notes of what I have in barrels, um, what kind of flavor profiles uh, I can get from those barrels, and then also what I feel like I'm missing or what I'm low on. Uh, you know, so, so with my, my fruited beers, for example, uh, I, I prefer using our Lambic inspired base beer. It's a, uh, it's a turbid mash. I, I do some of those spontaneously. Others are just with our mixed culture. It really kind of depends on the, the time of year here, mm-hmm. but, uh, but that's a beer that has a lot of aged hops in it. It has tons of tannins and, uh, and it doesn't have too much acidity, uh, especially if it's, uh, less than about a year and a half old. And those are, are great beers for me to use with fruit because, you know, fruit is going to lend acidity. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget nowadays in, in beer, because there are so many breweries that are making, you know, kettle sours or other beers with, with fruit where they're not even really fermenting the fruit. You know, they're, they're uh, basically taking a finished beer and dosing in uh, fruit puree or whatever into the bright tank and, uh, and telling customers to drink it cold before, you know, inevitably it starts re-fermenting and, and builds up pressure and potentially explodes. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of people, you know, I, I get it all the time. People come into the tasting room and they look at our menu and they, they see the section that says fruit beers and they say, Oh yeah, I want to, I want one of your fruit beers. Those are going to be sweeter. And you know, it's, I'm like, no, actually those are going to be the most sour beers that I have here. Um, and they don't, they don't understand that. And it's, it's simply because all the, the, the sugar in the fruit is fermented out and you're left with the acidity that is in that fruit. And so, you know, peaches, apricots, raspberries, passion fruit, those lend a good bit of acidity, uh, especially the, the Florida peaches that we have. And so I've, I've been uh, kind of making micro adjustments to the recipes that I use, especially for, for Florida peaches every year. Mm-hmm. And this year, I feel like I finally got the, the acidity dialed in where I want it. And, uh, and it's simply, you know, taking into account the fact that I'm, I'm going to be getting a lot of acidity from the fruit. So when I'm, when I'm trying to figure out what I need to brew next, a, a lot of it is just kind of taking inventory of what I have in the barrels, what those barrels are, are going to be destined for, uh, you know, more or less anyway. I, I, I try to leave a certain number of barrels uh, and certain number of types of barrels that I use specifically for improvisational stuff yeah. um, and, and stuff that just, you know, seems to be the, the, the best use of that barrel at the time. Um, but there are other barrels that, that, you know, I'll, I'll fill. And from day one, I know this is a, a barrel that I'm going to use for, for this fruit. So it's like stocking the pantry. Like we were talking before of like going in and in some cases, like yeah, having absolutely. something on hand. Yeah. Yeah, definitely is. You know, I mean, I, it's a, it's definitely a different mindset from a, from a typical brewery because uh, I'm thinking, you know, several months and, and even years out, uh, you know, in, in August of this year, I finished packaging up all the beers that I'm planning to sell this year. And so the, the beers that I'm bottling up right now, I'm planning to sell in April and May of next year. So it's, um, we, we definitely operate on a different time schedule. All right. So we started off, uh, a very long time ago now talking about, uh, oddities and outliers, and we got through the first one and then you opened up all these veins of conversation. Um, what did you do for, for the second debut or for the second turnaround? Yeah. So blend two, uh, I I was really happy with how that one came out. So, 
three very different beers. Uh, almost half of the blend, I, th- I believe it was about 48% of the blend, was a dry hopped wild ale uh, that was brewed more or less like an IPA, um, but hopped uh, with very late additions. I believe I, I threw in some hops, 10 minutes left in the boil, and then the majority was in the whirlpool. Uh, fermented out entirely just with our mixed culture, spent 16 months in French oak barrels. Uh, and then I, I blended that with about 38% of one of our Lambic inspired turbid mash beers that was spontaneously fermented. And then the, um, uh, the smallest component in that blend was, uh, that same 36 month old, uh, lager that I used in blend one. Um, so that was, I want to say about 10% of the blend, 10, 12%, 14% of the blend, actually, I think if I remember that correctly. Anyway, um, after that, I, I lightly dry hopped the blend um, with whole cone American hops. I only dry hop with whole cone hops. Okay. And um, part of that is because of my equipment. Um, and I don't have any conical tanks. I don't have a glycol chiller. And uh, hop, whole hops uh, just work better uh, with my equipment. But I also yeah. really like the flavor more. I, I feel like it's it has kind of an old school hop flavor. Uh, there's just something different about whole cone hops uh, compared to pellets as far as the, the flavor profile. And I don't know. Uh, I've, I've talked to, to, you know, obviously the companies that sell pelletized hops that really want you to believe that there's not a difference, but yeah, you, there you, definitely you, is. Uh, I, I know what you mean. And, yeah. um, but there, there's just, there's, there's a certain like grassiness. I mean, the, you know, I mean, they call them T90 pellets for a reason and that's because they're, they're missing 10% of the material that's otherwise found in whole cone hops. Now, I don't know how much of a difference exactly that 10% of the material makes, but uh, in my experience, there is definitely a difference. Um, is there something that you can point to on your palate that you've been able to notice? It's really just kind of a grassiness. I, I wish I could uh, uh, describe it better, but it's uh, so uh, I, I guess going back a little bit to something I, I mentioned earlier about how yeah. we use a, a good bit of hops just in general is uh, there, there's a, a mouthfeel aspect. It's, it's, a, it's a textural thing. And uh, I, I just, I feel like that's a, a big thing that a lot of brewers uh, making sour and wild beers are missing out on is, uh, you know, I, I purposefully try to put a lot of body in my beers. And, you know, you talk with some other producers that make great beers, by the way, and they'll talk about how, you know, their beer finishes at zero Play-Doh. Uh, I don't want that. Usually my driest beer finishes at 1.7 Play-Doh. And, uh, you know, that's, that's actually a pretty high finishing gravity for a wild ale. And, and that's intentional. And I feel like when you do that combined with a, a decent amount of hops, uh, the beer ends up being multi-layered and it's, it's not just kind of a, a quick one and done, uh, sort of approach, um, that, uh, may make a fine and drinkable product, but I, but I just, I feel like it's missing something. And, uh, so, I've, I've personally noticed, uh, just with my own beers and this, this could be a different experience that, uh, than from what other people would, would get, uh, from their mixed cultures. But, uh, I just feel like using whole cone hops, I I just get a different layer of flavor and it it tastes like a more complete beer. And also the, because that, you know, most breweries aren't using whole cone hops nowadays. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's something that also kind of separates us from, from those other breweries, even if the customer tries it. They don't know the fact that we're using whole cone hops. Maybe they don't care, um, but I'll bet that they taste the difference. Whether they know that that's what the the difference is or not, uh, kind of doesn't matter. I it, it's interesting to hear you say, like, even if they don't know or don't care, 
Um, but it's important to you at the end of the day, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you don't want to compromise on the beers that you're making. And, you know, even if you did have conicals or glycol or, you know, it sounds like you just, you know, pellets aren't what you want for you as a brewer. Sure. Yeah. That's not to say that you can't make great beer with it. And, and, you know, if oh, I, I didn't know, and you certainly didn't say that. Yeah. 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 No, but I'm, but I guess what I mean is that, you know, if, if I did have conical tanks and I did have a glycol chiller, well then I probably would use pellets because they're more practical. They're more efficient. They're cheaper. Um, you know, they, they don't take up as much space. There's, there's a huge list of reasons why most brewers use pellets. And if, if I had, uh, you know, a glycol chiller and conical tanks, I'd probably be using pellets and I'd probably figure out, you know, some way to otherwise try to achieve what I'm trying to achieve with my beers. Now I just have to go about it differently. You know, maybe yeah. there would be something else that I would change to, to try to achieve the, the texture and mouthfeel that I want in the beers. Um, you know, could be something different in the brew house could be something different with ingredients, with malts, you know, I don't know, but, um, to a certain extent, I've, I've found what, what I think works for me. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm brewing for my palate too. And I think that's something that's very different for, for odd breed versus a lot of other breweries out there is that I'm a little spoiled in that I make beers for myself. And, you know, I think nowadays, most breweries, most brewers, they don't really get to do that. Uh, you know, I talk with brewers all the time that kind of embarrassingly tell me about these, these stupid beers that they're making and they refer to them as stupid, not just me, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. um, but you know, that's, that's a craft beer in 2021, you know, we're, we're making beers a lot of times for a, a completely different beer drinker than uh, what existed 10 years ago. There's a, there, there is something about staying true to yourself and staying true to the mission because I mean, I, I talk to those brewers all the time who are saying, you know, yeah, we brewed this something, you know, something stupid. Um, and then they're saying, but we also made payroll this week. Sure. And it's this. It is a business. Yeah. yeah. Um, has Have you had temptation to or felt the pressure, you know, if somebody says, well, why don't you just put on like a regular hazy, you know, just just for the tap room, you know, just just for the people who are asking for it. Um, has that happened? Sure. So I'm, I'm uh, maybe a little bit embarrassed to say this in part because I don't like hazy IPAs. But, you know, that uh, that beer that I was talking about that I most recently brewed. Mm-hmm. I do have that on draft right now okay. uh, as a non-barrel aged, non-wild uh, beer. Okay. Uh, now it was open fermented. Uh, you know, most of it is in barrels right now. And, uh, and I put that on draft and uh, you know, I don't really push it, but, uh, but I like when people come into the tap room, I want to offer something that they enjoy. And so uh, you know, something that's unusual for, for our brewery, I don't know how typical this is in other parts of the country, but I think I've got like 40 different beers on my guest beer menu. Uh, we also sell wine. We sell uh, some natural ciders. And uh, it's simply because I want people to come in here and find something that they enjoy. Yeah. Uh, what we do is very foreign to a lot of people, especially in South Florida. And, you know, all these other beers that I'm carrying from other producers around the world, and most of them are actually from outside the U.S., um, they're awesome beers. I mean, they're, they're beers that, that I picked because... I think they, they span the whole gamut of, of different types of flavors, not necessarily all styles. Um, but you know, if somebody comes in and they tell me that they're, they normally drink such and such beer, chances are, I'm not going to have that beer and I'm probably have, I'm going to offer them something that they've never heard of. Um, 
but uh, but usually they approach it with an open mind and they they really enjoy that that product. Um, but part of the reason that I put this this beer on on draft, you know, non barrel aged, not not with any discernible wild character to it, is uh, simply because we get a lot of people who come in that want to insist on drinking our beer, uh, you know, and and uh, sometimes I I can't offer them something that makes them happy. And I, I see them, you know, sitting over there with a grimace, drinking our beer saying, oh yeah, it's great. And, you know, meanwhile, I know I'm never going to see that person again. <laughs> but, uh, you know, part of the reason that, that I haven't caved in and uh, adopted a more flexible business model is uh, it, it, with, as far as the styles of beer that I make is simply because I don't really have that as a luxury. You know, I, I opened this place uh, from day one and, and by the way, spent a long time looking for the right right spot because I'm in South Florida. Uh, I keep my spot at 69 degrees year round, trying to find an industrial property that's uh, zoned for manufacturing that's, yep. you know, well insulated, that has AC in place. Um, that It's really tough, especially because I'm, I'm not in a huge space, you know, and so uh, it, it took a while for me to find this spot. Everything that I that I I set up as far as our production area, it's it's very intentional. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't have the flexibility to just say that I'm going to make a different style of beer one day. Uh, right. you know, my, my tanks are, are typically used for wine. Uh, they don't hold pressure, uh, you know, not more than, than about two PSI anyway. Okay. Uh, they're not conical. I don't have a glycol chiller, you know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not doing forced carbonated beers. Everything's naturally conditioned. Uh, so there are just. I don't really have those options. So it, it almost in some ways makes it easier to, to, you know, stay true to what I, I set out to do, uh, for better or worse. I, I, I mean, I just, uh, the pandemic has screwed up so much where I miss doing these things in person because I feel like we'd be having a lot of fun opening up bottles right now and just sort of talking nuance and, process oh, yeah, for sure etc et i'm et bummed that so, i missed the uh, the funk fest this year i know it was uh it was a lot of it was a lot of fun and that's uh, i know we were talking about uh hopefully doing something there and then uh um i mean I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity obviously to be talking with you now but um so much is is just been lost from the in-person drinking experience and conversations like this really drive it home for me um but in a perfect world, which it's not, um, I'd be getting on a plane next week to uh, come down for the third release of Oddities and Outliers. Right? You said it's next week. Oh no! no um, I'm, I'm, so I'm bottling oh, it. Oh, uh, oh, you're week. bottling it next. Yeah. Week. Okay. So it, it won't be ready until uh, like late spring or or potentially even early summer. Oh. Um, I'm going to release Blend Two next week. So that's okay. Um, Sorry. Yeah. yeah we. My we timeline of, is all screwed up. Yeah. No, that's all right. Yeah. Well, that's that's actually something that's been a little tricky for me because uh, I, I do uh, our social media stuff too. And, uh, you know, I, I actually <laughs> got out of the habit of telling people what I'm putting into bottles because I have people calling the brewery asking, uh, you know, can I pick up such and such beer today? I'm like, no, it's, it's not even carbonated. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, uh, well, when is it going to be released? I don't know, like four months. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, it, but that's, uh, that's just the, the way that we, that we operate. It's a, it's a different type of brewery in that sense. But, um, you know, we, we, uh, uh, we're really fortunate to, to win the, the gold medal at GABF this year for oddities and outliers blend too. Yeah. And, uh, some people were reading the description on it and they're like, that's not what it tastes like. And I was like, no, you, you had blend one blend two hasn't been released yet. Um, 
you know, it's kind of fun uh, winning a medal for a beer that hasn't been released yet. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of cool. I, uh, I was trying to figure out what beers I wanted to send off. And, uh, of course, everything else that I decided to send off was labeled and, and already had been sold. And, uh, but there was just something kind of unique about that beer. I felt like it hit all the right, um, uh, areas and, and, uh, I don't know. It's just something about the nuance and complexity of that beer. There's, uh, I, I feel like I'm not always that great at, at describing what that, that, uh, that just like, extra little unique character is but uh but that beer has it so as you're now getting ready for blend three um there's obviously two iterations that you've gone through that you've learned from uh you've messed around with you've obviously had great success with um at least on the judging scale how did you when you started planning out blend three did you change up the approach? Was there anything that you would learn that you put into practice? Uh, a little bit. Um, so, you know, blend, uh, this, the oddities and outliers series for the most part has a little bit more of a focus on some of our oldest barrels. And, uh, you know, those are oftentimes the ones that have some really nice, unique character, but they can also be kind of rough around the edges. And so what I mean by that is that they're more likely to have, uh, a pretty discernible level of acetic acid and sometimes ethyl acetate. And uh, those, those are flavors that can be kind of tough to, to blend out, I feel like. Um, and so sometimes it's trying to pick flavors that seem complementary uh, to that. Um, but usually when I, when I make these blends uh, for this series and, and, and otherwise, I, for the most part, already know what I want to do. Um, it's it's usually a question of what percentages and i usually for the most part already have um, a general idea of what percentage will will achieve what i want um but you know i, I feel like i'm i'm still getting better i'm always trying to learn more and uh one of the things that i i really like about making these kind of beers you know our, our slogan is flavor from fermentation um we're a fermentation focused brewery and so what i mean by that is that you know, you, you can't buy our, our mixed culture uh, from a yeast lab. Um, you, we're not making paint by numbers beers, you know, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And you can, you can make great beers with that type of approach. Um, there are certainly some, some breweries that are well known for their hazy IPAs and they seem to release uh, a new beer every week. That's really the same beer with just like a, a minor change to the hops. Um, yes or the order that the hops are added in the kettle or dry hop or whatever it may be. Oh yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I really like the fermentation aspect and I feel like so many breweries overlook, uh, your, your fermentation, your yeast, in our case, yeast and bacteria as, as one of your ingredients, uh, multiple ingredients in our, in our case. And, uh, and I, I feel like there's so much complexity and uh, unique flavor that you can derive, uh, from your fermentation that uh, that it seems to be somewhat of an afterthought for a lot of breweries. And I, I think that's that's kind of a shame. But um, but, you know, making these types of beers is something that you can you can learn the basics of. Um, I feel like reading books or, um, you know, listening to other podcasts. Uh, the Milk the Funk Wiki is, uh, oh, is yeah. a great resource. Uh, and it's really cool that all that information is out there now. But I think really just anecdotal experience is really important, uh, especially if you're using your own, you know, unique mixed culture of wild yeast and bacteria. 
it's going to behave differently in different breweries and it's going to behave differently based on what your equipment is, what your approach is. And so that's not to say that I don't try to learn from other brewers, but I, I feel like your own experience of just making the beers, just jumping in head first and, and trying to figure out how to, how to make something the best that it can be. That's, that's really what's meaningful. So I, I, I am learning, you know, still as I go. And, and I, I feel like I know way more about my mixed culture now than I did four years ago. Uh, and I put this blend together about eight years ago and, you know, it's, it's all, uh, uh, been managed in-house by me since then. And, uh, and it's, it's evolving, it's mutating, you know, for the most part in the direction that I want it to go. Uh, yeah, I wanted I'm, to ask about it. Yeah. I just like when you're tasting it, when you know, yeah, I, I mean, in so many ways, it's like the house, you know, the house DNA, um, you know, sure. these house cultures is there, are there telltale flavors, telltale aromas that you feel are, you know, particular to odd breed because of your house strain? Oh yeah, there definitely are. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I could describe that better. It's, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know where you start on trying to describe something like that, you yeah. know, and, and the way I view it is going to be different from, from how someone else views it. And, you know, one thing that that's really interested me, especially in the last couple of years or so is working on different ways to manipulate our, our mixed culture to produce different types of flavors. And so, uh, when I, when I first started, uh, uh, dabbling with, uh, well, really, I, I guess when I started focusing more, I should say. On, on some mixed culture fermentations. Uh, I was basically running a, a rudimentary yeast lab that I, I put together in an extra room and I was managing multiple different blends. And I, I think I was working with something like 20 to 30 different microbes. Um, I got my undergraduate degree in microbiology. So I have a, a, a little bit of an understanding of this stuff, but it's a little bit, you know, I was, yeah. but I was doing this on a really rudimentary level, you know, and uh, um, I'm, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that I, I actually don't even own a microscope right now. I've been putting my, my funds into other things, but, uh, but the truth is, you know, and I, and I have looked at our, our mixed culture under microscope and it doesn't tell me as much as my anecdotal experience does as much as uh, sensory does. Um, and, and also, you know, just kind of monitoring fermentations, figuring out how long it takes for this to happen versus that to happen. Um, but I, I think that our mixed culture is relatively soft. Um, especially compared to a lot of laboratory strains. I think that one thing that a lot of breweries get wrong when they try to make these sort of styles is uh, they don't include enough uh, biodiversity, uh, meaning that, you know, they're, yeah. they, they want to use two Brett strains or one Brett strain. Um, Brett doesn't have a huge genome compared to Saccharomyces. It produces some interesting flavors, but if you, if you use one or two strains of Brett, you're going to get some really dominant over the top notes in a couple of areas right. and those might be some nice flavors, but they're not going to be in balance. It's not going to be subtle. Uh, and in my opinion, doesn't create a really drinkable product. Um, I, I originally put 16 strains of Britannomyces in our, in our mixed culture. And, uh, when I first did it, it was actually just kind of an experiment. I just wanted to see what would happen. And, yeah. uh, and the beer turned out really well. And so I, I kept kind of reusing that mixed culture and I was, um, this was about, I guess, six years ago now or so that um i had a, a 20 gallon system in my garage i was still working as a 
uh, had brewed another brewery uh, while I was trying to open odd breed while I was doing these these homebrew batches, test batches, whatever you want to call them. But basically, mm-hmm. I was brewing 20 gallon batches, and I would split them into four uh, carboys, and uh, and ferment them out differently, and try to figure out you know what I liked most about about different yeast strains, about different blends, and uh, once I started messing around with what is uh, today our mixed culture, um, I think I brewed like four or five beers, uh, or I should say fermented four or five beers with our, our mixed culture and decided, you know what, I'm just going to focus on this. Uh, this keeps producing my favorite beers. Uh, they weren't quite as predictable then from a, from a fermentation standpoint as they are now. Um, but, uh, but I felt like, you know, ultimately I wanted to open a brewery and, and uh, I didn't want to open a microbiology lab. And sure. so, uh, uh, so I, I decided to kind of really focus just on that, that one mixed culture. And then, uh, especially in the last couple of years, learning more about how I can manipulate the flavors in that. And the, the main ways that I'm doing that, uh, I guess really three things. One is using a different strain for primary fermentation. Um, and, and I've tried multiple different things, whether it be Belgian ale yeast, English ale, uh, some Saison type strains, um, you know, and, and they all end up producing a little bit of a, a different flavor in the final product. Uh, two would be uh, IBUs, uh, not just hopping, but but actual IBU numbers. Um, higher the IBU, the more the more funk I'm getting for the most part. Uh, okay. And then third, and this is something that I, I feel like is definitely under an underutilized tool by most breweries, and that is pH at the onset of fermentation. And so. Uh, I do some beers, especially hoppy beers, that I want to have more of a citrus and tropical flavor from. I'll blend in uh, anywhere from about 10 to 15% of a mature sour beer, specifically for the purpose of lowering that pH below four. Uh, I've found that with my mixed culture, when I'm, when I'm doing my fermentation in a, an environment that has a starting pH below four, uh, I'm getting tons of these citrus and, and tropical esters, uh, and, it's, and it's subduing some of the funk. Um, and especially in something that has more IBUs, that beer isn't going to be too sour um, because of, of uh, the IBUs keeping, keeping the, the souring bacteria in check. But getting that pH below about four or so uh, really, really drives more of the, the, the flavor notes that seem to work better in tandem with, uh, with citrusy American hops. And then the fun comes in just blending those, those different components together. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. And I mean, the results speak for themselves, but still that's, uh, <laughs> so you're having fun. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, that's why I started this brewery is I wanted to have fun. I wanted to make the kind of beers that, that inspire me, that, that get me excited to, to go work in the brewery. You know, it's, it's a lot of hard work. It's very hands-on, uh, especially at the, the kind of beer that I'm making, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm touching literally every bottle, um, you know, that that's filled and, and a few times, by the way, unfortunately, yeah. you know, I wish it was a little bit more efficient in some ways, but, um, but there's, there's really a lot of care, um, and passion that's, that's put into these beers and a lot of, a lot of intention too. And I feel like that's something that, that really is lost, uh, amongst a lot of brewers nowadays is that I, I brew relatively large batches for the size of our operation. And so, uh, you know, I only brew usually once or twice a month and, uh, that that those are recipes even though some of them i only brew once they're um they're beers that i think about for a long period of time before the brew day and i'm yeah. thinking about everything from uh you know obviously the the recipe formulation but also 
how I'm going to brew it in the brew house, whether I'm going to do any turbid mashes, decoctions, what step mashes I want to do on it. Uh, am I going to use the hop back? What do I do? I want to use whole cone hops. Do I want to use aged hops and fresh hops? Uh, you know, what, what sort of flavor profile am I looking for with that? I've, I've done some things where I'm intentionally adding uh, coriander to a beer in the whirlpool uh, to, to increase the geranial content so that I get, I get more citrus character in the finished beer. Um, you know, and then of course, how, I, how I'm planning to ferment it, what I want my knockout temperature to be because I don't have a glycol chiller. You know, I got to think about, especially uh, the time of year, if I'm bringing back uh, wort to my place uh, in the summer, you know, that, that wort's going to warm up by a few degrees. Cause I, I don't own a brew house, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier, but, uh, but I'm doing the, the old Lambic technique of brewing at somebody else's brewery and then sure. bringing the wort back to my place. So there's, I, there's I, I wouldn't, ex- I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I known that beforehand, but I wouldn't have expected it any other way uh, before yeah. we talked <laughs> uh, for the, for the type of beers that you're making. Um, all right. So then to bring it home from where we started, um, can you tell us about the the third version? Is it is it ready for for you to discuss, or are you yeah, trying to yeah, keep it quiet? Yeah, I can discuss okay. it. I'm, I'm pretty right. I'm pretty excited about it. It's uh, so it's a, a barrel. Uh, it's based around a barrel of um, three and a half year old lambic inspired turbid mash beer. Um, it was brewed uh, back when was that? I want to say it was June of uh, uh, no, actually it was May of 2018. Simpler and, times. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that's really kind of the backbone of the beer. And then it's being blended with um, um, our, I don't even, I don't have a name for it yet, but it's, it's basically a farmhouse ale that's brewed with all American ingredients, American six row, uh, some uh, American uh, unmalted wheat and a little bit of flaked oats. And then it's all Cascade Centennial hops, uh, including Cascade and the hop back. Uh, it's, a it's a more bitter beer at about 50 IBUs. Uh, I did add a little bit of uh, mature sour beer to that beer at the onset of fermentation, again, just to, to suppress the funk a little bit on that one. And then it has a very small component of a six month old, uh, wild Pilsner. Uh, so that was, a um, basically brewed like a, a Dortmunder Pilsner, um, I love Dortmunders. They're, they're yeah. one of my, my favorite styles. I've actually brewed way more lagers commercially than I have wild ales. Uh, okay. Maybe a little bit more on the opposite side of the spectrum from what I do now. But yeah. uh, but anyway, I, I, I really like what our mixed culture does after a, a lager primary fermentation. And uh, so that beer has a little bit more hops, uh, produces a really nice kind of a classic uh, Brett funk. Um, I, uh, I, I like to describe it as kind of like Orval character. Uh, where it's just that, that, uh, like like kind of musty, uh, you know, horse stable, whatever you want to call it, horse blanket sort of flavor. Those, those really like spicy Brett Brooks phenols. Yeah. Uh, So that's kind of what that, that part of the blend brings to the table. And so, um, you know, altogether, uh, once it's, it's conditioned and ready, it's my hope that it'll kind of, um, end up tasting a little bit like a mixture between a, uh, like a Lambic and a, a very old, uh, mature, you know, three plus year old Lambic with, uh, with some of those bright, like stone fruit, tropical flavors from, uh, uh, from that farmhouse, uh, that hoppy farmhouse sale, the, um, uh, the wild lager, I expect to, to kind of just get lost a little bit in the background, but to contribute, hopefully some, some nice Brett character. That's awesome. It's, uh, 
I think it'll be a cool beer. I'm, I've definitely been looking. I mean, I'm, to it. yeah, I, I, I have a smile on my face just hearing the description of it. So that's, uh, um, and that's spring, summer ish. I'm hope, thinking probably maybe? late spring. Um, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. So right. there's certain beers that I make like that that I don't plan to release for at least like four or five months. Okay. Um, I think the first oddities and outliers blend. I think I conditioned that in a bottle for nine months. Um, the uh, the second one I bottled that up in April, and mm-hmm. we're releasing it at the end of this month. Cool. I've been asking folks on the show occasionally over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it was the the setup is uh, my wife and I were rewatching The Good Place uh, on Netflix just to sort of get away from the you know, the trauma of the world. And there's this whole concept of being able to walk through a green door and be any place at any time with anybody that you want. So if uh, such uh, you know wonderful you know this existed on this plane of existence, um, and you could walk through a green door after this interview is over, where would it take you? What pub would it take you? And who would you be with to have a pint with? Oh man. Um, put me on the spot here. It's, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, not, thanks I'm for not... listening to the show and knowing that this question <laughs> so, was coming. So I have, yeah. I have heard the question a couple times <laughs> on the show. Uh, and to be honest, I, I thought about it and I was like, man, I don't know how I would answer that question. And I still don't know how I would answer the question. <laughs> and you knew um, you were coming I guess, on. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, so this isn't um, gotcha journalism. Like, you know, no, like I know, you knew this I know. was coming. I know. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I've, I'm kind of into, uh, to beer history. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I've, I've never met Ken from Sierra Nevada. Um, but I imagine he would be a cool person to meet and, and to kind of talk to, especially when Sierra Nevada was just getting started. Uh, so I, I could, I could see that as being something now. pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't been out to Chico. I've been to the, um, uh, the North Carolina facility a couple of times, yeah. which is, which is really amazing. And I, I think a lot of beer drinkers, um, that aren't in the industry can't appreciate how special that place is. Uh, you know, I've been to a lot of breweries uh, around the country, a, a lot in Germany, a lot in Belgium. And uh, and there are definitely some other, you know, really cool breweries that have way more history than that place does. But uh, um, but yeah, I, there's there's something magical about that place that I feel like just kind of captures the whole uh, uh, evolution of craft beer in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I definitely like to, to pick Ken's brain, I guess, on a few things. Um you know, I, I've I've had the chance to meet a lot of the the lambic producers in Belgium, and uh, and this was all about 10, 12 years ago. Um, definitely had some some cool conversations with them. You know, the whole beer scene has changed a lot in the last ten years, and in a lot of ways, I feel like not for the better. And uh, I don't mean to sound like the old man yelling at clouds kind of thing. No, you've come to the right but, show uh, for that. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, I I. I have a strong distaste for, for a lot of the, the current styles. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, we, we make a t-shirt on the back of it. It says lactose intolerant since 2017. <laughs> and, uh, um, that, that really upsets a lot of brewers nowadays. And, uh, you know, I, I wish that it didn't, I, I guess some of them can't take a joke too well, but, um, um, but yeah, Again, they're making payroll. Yeah. 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 No. And, and I don't hate them for what they're doing, you know? Yeah. And, and the whole thing is, uh, if, if they like making <laughs> those great. styles and their customers like them and they're, they're known within their niche for, for doing well at those styles, then, then great for them. You know, I, I wish, I wish that those styles 
appealed to me so that I could go home and sleep well at night and feel like I, I made a great product because I know that those things are easier to make. Um, they're definitely more profitable. It's a better business decision to make those than to make the beers that I'm making. Sure. Um, but uh, I, I just, there's so much work involved in brewing. And, uh, and I think a lot of people don't realize that, that uh, I feel like if I'm, if I'm going to work for low pay and lots of hours and, you know, have all this stress and uh, be exhausted going home from work, what's, what's the payoff to me? To me, it's making a product that I'm proud of. And if you're able to do that, making some of the other styles that are popular today, then my hat's off to you, you know, uh, good for you. I, I love making um, uh, traditional German lagers. If I, if I had, uh, um, you know, more money in my bank account, maybe, maybe that's the brewery I should have opened, but I, I didn't have access to a lot of funds. I wanted to open a brewery that could focus on making the kind of beers that I wanted to make that where I didn't feel like I was beholden to, uh, uh, to a large, you know, local demographic um, because of the type of beers that I make age so well. I don't have to be beholden to my to my local customers. I can I can ship stuff, you know, around the country and around the world, and uh, and I'm able to to pay the bills that way. Um, but it's but it's not the easiest way to to operate a brewery, and uh, you know. So I guess maybe in some some ways, I wish I was lactose tolerant. All right. So I'm mindful of time, but because you opened up this vein of you know, the old man and being angry at a lot of different things. If you in your position and from, from where you sit right now could offer up a resolution to the beer industry, you know, we're coming up on the, the beginning of the year, people always trying to you know, make empty hollow promises, that kind of thing. But if, if, if you wanted to, to say, okay, everybody in beer, let's get together and make this one resolution together. Do you know what it might be? Uh, stop putting bullshit in beer. Um, Processed foods don't belong in beer. <laughs> Perfect. Done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'd wear that shirt too. Stop putting bullshit in beer. Um, yeah. Sold. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I mean, it, you know, there's, there are some good beers that are made with, with plenty of adjuncts. I don't mean to, to make it sound like there aren't, but, um, but it's just, they're not my style of beer. And I, I long for the old days when, you went into a brewery and uh, the beers on the wall were, were uh, you know, to BJCP styles. I, I used to tell people when I first entered the industry, people had asked, you know, what kind of beers do you like uh, or what kind of styles do you like? And I'd say, I, I like all styles except milk stouts. And it's just because I don't like the way lactose tastes in beer. Yeah. And uh, I had somebody ask me uh, like six months ago, what, what styles of beer uh, I don't like. And I was like, well, how much time do you have? Oh man. You know, yeah. and, and I, and I, I so they, they said, I don't know, I got plenty of time. So I, I think I riddled off a list of maybe like 10 different things. And they were like, all right, well, what do you like? Yeah. Yeah. It's just <laughs> and, easier at that point to, yeah, to actually answer the question. Yeah. 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 But I just, I, I feel like we've, we've gone so far away from what, you know, good traditional beer uh, used to be. And, and uh, there are still some breweries that are doing an exceptional job and, and uh, uh, my hat's off to them. But, you know, when I lived in, in South Carolina a decade ago, I could go to a grocery store over there and and find better, fresher beer for my palate than I can now living in a, a major metropolitan area in South Florida. And, you know, that's it's just kind of depressing in that sense. You know, uh, if you told me that 10 years ago, I'd, I'd have better beer options in, in rural South Carolina than I would 
10 years from now in, in South Florida, I, I wouldn't have believed you. It's amazing. Yep. All right. Before we go too further down, uh, I'm going to say thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate your time and your insight. And uh, this went in a dozen different directions that I never could have anticipated. So, um, you know, thanks for obviously walking us through oddities and outliers, but sort of sharing your brewing philosophy along the way and hope we can actually do this in person soon. Cause this, this was a lot of fun and you know, yeah, yeah I really appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate you talking with me. I do appreciate you listening to the show and sharing all of your beer thoughts and insight. You keep sharing. I'll keep responding. You can always reach me at John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at beeredge.com if you like email, or I'm on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And a reminder that Beer Edge is on social media at The Beer Edge. And if you love smoked beers, and of course you do, a reminder to check out the This Week in Rauk Beer group on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram by following us on at TW Rauk Beer. If you're interested in advertising, you can please reach out to Liz Melby. She's at Liz at BeerEdge.com, and she'll let you know all of the information. And speaking of that, this episode was made possible by the support of NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. With a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge handed down through the generations, the current day master growers proudly provide 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. We're also brought to you by Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code DRINKBEER15 for 15% off your first order. One last reminder to go to beeredge.com to see all that we have going on, including the merch page and check out the be, the Beer Edge podcast. <laughs> Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast drops on the 15th of every month. And as for this show, you know it. Nate Schweber, he does the music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. And I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday. And that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.